0: I like to begin this talk tonight, as I often do on the second night of a retreat, uh, with a, another congratulations for making it through the second day. Uh, for many people, this is actually a harder day than the first. I don't know if that, uh, if that's true for you, but it's, sometimes it's a little swampier, a little more restless. Uh, just we face what's... Uh, what's rather difficult to bear. We see more clearly the, the state of our mind and what it does quite unbidden. And uh, just to, to give you the sense or to normalize this, I, I wanted to share with you a passage from a teacher named uh, Bhante Gunaratna, who may speak to what you have recognized today. He says, somewhere in the process of meditation, you will come face to face with the sudden realization that you are completely crazy. (laughs) Your mind is a shrieking madhouse on wheels barreling down the hill, utterly out of control and helpless, hopeless. No problem. You are not any crazier than you were yesterday. It has always been this way, and you never noticed. So Anna spoke last night about, uh, about noticing in a different way. And what we've nor- normally noticed is through the lens of our, as she said, our likes and our dislikes, the lens of what we think about things, our analysis, our interpretation. And we've been invited to bring this quality of bare attention and this light of attention uh, to just really see how it is without any analysis, but just to, to bear witness to the movements of our mind with as little interference as possible. And you can see without any prompting, all hell breaks loose, doesn't it? It's wild. And in a more painful sense, our bodies, we feel our bodies hurting and our minds. But we begin to taste, as Anna spoke about, this capacity that we have to notice. And that it's not just that uh, pop version that uh, she spoke about of It's often the way that mindfulness is translated. you know, I was mindful of this, I was mindful of that, but more this potential to um, within us that is a, that is really in its um, capacity, this very keen observing power, this extraordinary light, like a laser, like a microscope. Uh, And uh, this, uh, this, attention of ours has the capacity to see deeply into how things, not just what's happening, but how it behaves. What's the nature of what it is that we're paying attention to. And she talked about that, those qualities that that help support that deepening sense of this observing power. And she talked about that that quality of, I don't remember, she used the word confrontation, I often think of being face to face, not glancing, not just drifting, but face to face, direct. And that she used the, talked about the quality of non superficiality, that capacity of our mind to sink into something, to, to not just stay on the surface and observe from a distance, but go right into it, as you may even go into, sense into the sensations that you feel as you sit and you listen to this talk. It's not just noticing your body, but actually letting, it, letting the, the, the subtleties emerge in that. And then the, the third capacity, which he described as non-disappearing or something like that, I, I think of as sustain, that capacity to stay with something, to keep it in our view. And then in that process, we begin to discover something that we ordinarily wouldn't uh, see. We start to see the fact of change as it occurs. And we see that in, that in that moment of noticing, she talked about it as being uh, purifying. A lot of what we do is you could call it purifying. Each moment of attention, something we may not be aware of, each moment of inattention, each moment of attention It's not only what's present at that time, which is this quality of knowing, but it's also what's absent in any moment of attention. What's absent in that moment of just mirror-like reflection, what's absent is grasping, what's absent is condemning, not liking, and what's absent is ignoring or denying we simply right there. So you could say that in every moment of mindfulness, you are literally erasing or you're deconditioning what the Buddha called the three root causes of suffering, grasping, condemning, and delusion or denial or confusion, because they, these three things cannot coexist with a moment of attention. And this mirror-like quality that she spoke of, this quality of neutrality that reflects what it is that's uh, being observed, the more we observe, and it really doesn't matter what it is we're observing, the more experiences that are being known, that mirror-like quality, you could say it brightens. The mirror becomes more clear, as one teacher put it, A teacher named Nisargadatta, he talks about our mindfulness, our attention brushes the dust of memory. So the clear mirror of the mind can be laid bare. And in a sense, every moment of noticing, doesn't matter what you're noticing, it has the effect of of brushing the dust of memory, allowing things to be reflected that much more clearly And by meeting our experience with this mirror-like awareness, even our difficulties, even the things that are painful, and I think this is really uh, unique to being a human being, that even our difficulties, when brought under that light of attention, become the cause of healing, of clarity, of wisdom, of compassion, that our difficulties really are our, our fertilizer. And I don't think there's another species that has that that capacity to turn our difficulties into into freedom. So tonight I'd like to talk a little bit more about bringing this mirror-like attention to some of the difficulties that present themselves both in our lives and uh, especially tonight, those that present themselves on retreat. And as a as a little invocation to this, I'd like to read a poem from Hafiz that really speaks of and invites us to shine that light. It's called "It Felt Love." How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement, a light of. It felt the encouragement of light against its being. Otherwise, we all remain too frightened. How did the rose ever open its heart and give to this world all its beauty? It felt the encouragement of light against its being. So when the Buddha sat down under the Bodhi tree after having taken food and found that that middle way that realizing that the extremes of self-mortification and starvation uh, and the extremes of, of, you could say, sensual indulgent did not bring any kind of reliable relief, he sat down. And he did essentially what all of us are doing here. From the moment you arrived here, you were literally walking in the, in the footsteps of the Buddha. What he did is he gathered his attention, this very natural quality that we have within us. It is so, it is so primary that to, as I think Mark even reminded us, we can't not be aware in a way. We, if, I, if I tell you to stop being aware right now, what happens? it is so natural to us but it's often something that we it's not given value and it's something that we don't appreciate all of its all the qualities all the intrinsic innate qualities that radiate emanate from from our minds when they are awake and alert and so we tend to go to sleep so what he did was he gathered his attention knowing that he was knowing aware of being aware. And he put his attention on his body. He brought mind and body together just exactly as you have been doing. Perhaps you're even doing it right now, bringing your mind and body together. He found that balance of calmness, receptivity, just receiving whatever was presenting itself. Quality of interest and curiosity, a lot of the awakening, the factors, so called factors of awakening. And then he began, with a lot of determination, to pay attention. He made the determination not to get up until he found something in the middle of this predicament that all of us are in, something that is could be said to be a reliable refuge a, a place of rest a place of peace a place a sense of well-being that wasn't so dependent on on circumstances because he saw in his life in his reflections and in 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 real time he saw that 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 sense of well-being that depend on circumstances depends on circumstances was very unreliable and of course you probably most of you know the story of how he was put into a kind of state of, of shock when he realized that every one of us gets old, every one of us gets sick, and every one of us will become a corpse when all is said and done. And that everything we hold near and dear will come to the same end. And it it kind of blew his mind and left him with a, with this great wondering, well, with life so, changeable and unreliable and in some ways empty or in some ways meaningless. You know, where, where can I find any relief in this? And fortunately, he became aware of some models of living wisely, that uh, he was uh, in the form of a monk or mendicant, and he began his, his practice, and, and a lot of it is, is within what we offer here that somehow to face life, to face reality, as Anna was speaking about, that we need a certain kind of support. Otherwise it's easy to fall into a kind of confusion. And then we, in not wanting to deal with it, we act out in so many different ways, Uh, just get lost in in endless, as you know, endless distractions. So he was, uh, he already understood that there was uh, that, that there wasn't in all the ways that he had previously I think it's true for most of us otherwise we wouldn't be here it's really a f- statement of our purity that we've understood that that if we're going to find something reliable it's an inside job it's it certainly hasn't come from the from the accumulations from the mall from the from all the new gadgets and the, it's unbelievable the ways that we can Bring, have pleasure, but how little happiness it brings. Any of you relate to that? So this is the exact same predicament that the Buddha, the Buddha was in, but he really, at this point, had only, um, the, his only interest is in, was in finding relief. And so he, he brightened the light. He gathered his, his attention He used whatever was presenting itself uh, as his meditation, as his, he used his confusion even as the practice. This is what we do. We ask you, even when you're confused, to say, oh, this is confusion. Really sense how confusion is. Any state of mind, it becomes part of our practice rather than something we need to get through or get rid of, move on to the next thing. We, as Anna said last night, we die on the cushion. We die, in, in one, one way that means die. <laughs> I'll never forget that. Die on the cushion. <laughs> I'm going to channel Anna now. <laughs> but what it means, in a sense, is to die to what we're experiencing. We often joke, be the first one to die of restlessness. Okay, take me. But in a, in a moment, when I stop resisting, stop avoiding, stop trying to get somewhere else, right in the middle of that, there's a, there's a precious little gift, there's a, there's a potential. So as he sat, he was visited by all the, the so-called kilesa, or torments of the mind, uh, the, the more general translation is defilements, things that color one's perception when they go unnoticed and they give us the sense that there's no possible way we can find relief right now. But he was visited by different voices in his mind. Often it's said that he was visited by Mara and Mara is uh, considered the personification of the the mind of temptation that wants to keep you just involved in and looking for the next distraction, the next pleasure that says, you know, I can't wait for the end of the sitting. I can't wait for the meal. I can't wait to the end of the retreat. Uh, Why did I, as we have mentioned, why did I sign up? How many of you, I'm wondering today, planned your escape? (laughs) I know I made elaborate plans on my first retreat, but this is Mara. Mara doesn't want you to stop. The good news is Mara is workable. Mara is something that we can begin to notice. We can notice these movements of mind. And it's so interesting how the moment I become aware that my mind is in a state of planning my escape, it's so different than that moment when i was lost in that plan scheming and absorbed in it without that presence of that the mental factor we call sati or mindfulness that knowing quality that oh this is this is planning my escape this is aversion or this is wanting so the buddha began to see mara and all the different all the different voices in his mind all the different states of mind, of, of strong desire, or aversion, the, the, the states of fear, of, um, of, um, of comparison, of pride, of all these different states, he began to see them for what they were. And interestingly enough, the more he paid attention, the more he saw these different states of mind rather than bringing him more suffering opening to mara and seeing mara for what he was rather than giving rise to more contraction his mind became brighter and brighter and brighter these very voices became the cause of his of his sense of presence they brought him back to to wakefulness rather than uh, than then caused delusion or caused confusion until he reached a point where his mind was literally, it's said in the, in the teachings that his mind was shining in its clarity, reflecting everything so clearly that he began to see some common things about all these voices. He began to see that they come and they go, that they are that not very substantial after all. He began to see that you could, he couldn't even hold on to them if he tried because they were changing conditions. And he saw that because they were coming and going, not really that which could be held on to, Mara, this voice, that voice. He saw that they, they could not be owned. They couldn't, be, they couldn't define him, they couldn't be owned by him. They couldn't, he, could, he couldn't say, this is me. He saw that they were in some ways selfless. And the more he just saw the the flow of experience, the brighter his mind got. The more his mind stopped, and probably because of the effect of the continuous mindfulness, his mind stopped pushing, stopped pulling, stopped getting lost and confused. And he fell into a a state of, of joy. Not the joy of being completely absorbed in some kind of trance, but the joy of touching and tasting a sense of well-being that didn't depend on what was going through his mind. He'd had all kinds of pleasures in his life, as the story goes, and he saw that those were, those were changing very rapidly and that they hadn't really given him a sense of... of they, it seemed like the pleasure that he got really depended on things just being a certain way, it's like when we, the pleasure, and there are so many of those, the pleasure of good company, the pleasure of the meals here, all these wonderful kinds of pleasures, but pleasures that are fleeting. And at this point, he touched a sense of well-being that, that, that wasn't, didn't depend on whether something was pleasurable or painful, whether it was high or low, And he recognized that this was actually the base, the fundamental nature of his own mind. He touched that sense of openness. That is uh, really the effect of mindfulness, which really takes the stickiness, the grasping out of whatever it is we're experiencing. So we don't really alter much what we experience. As Anna said last night, we alter slowly, but surely we alter the way that we relate to our experience, and we alter the way we understand our experience. So I tell you this story because I find the story inspiring. I don't know if you do, but somebody, a human being just like you, just like me, who had the same angst and the same dissatisfaction, the same desire to find some relief, who fell into the same traps uh, in his Earlier years of, uh, as we often say, looking for love in all the wrong places, and who, finally, uh, in this in the span of one of this of that life, he he stopped, and that that he no longer that, that search ended. He real ended. The good news is he found it was none other than his own mind. That source of relief. So it resolved his holy longing, his desire, but it definitely didn't resolve ours. But we can learn a lot from what he discovered. And the good news, another bit of good news, is he, out of the the compassion that flowed from his understanding, from his heart, he, although first reluctantly he began to share what he had learned and what he thought might be helpful for all of us. And he gave a discourse, and I'm just going to really very briefly go through the, the essence of it, I hope, uh, a discourse called the Dhamma Chaka Sutta. The Dhamma, which means the truth, the Chaka means the wheel, the Sutta means teaching. The, and this is the teaching of the turning of the wheel of the Dharma. When he, the, first, uh, um, the first discourse that he offered uh, to some friends of his, some of his ascetic friends that he that knew were very sincere. And, I, and he saw that there were beings with just a little dust on their eyes and if they could be pointed in the right direction, they could understand what he did. And uh, we all consider you uh, to be those who have just a little dust on their eyes. Um, a lot of conditioning, but, but the purity to be able to understand the teachings and to put them to practice, and to realize the fruits of the practice. So the first thing he told his, suggested to his ascetic friends that they needed to look at is the fact that life, no matter who you are, if you are a being who draws breath, or even the beings that don't necessarily draw breath, but... uh, living beings, to all living beings, life has its measure of stress and suffering. Life has within it many, many things that are difficult to bear. He talked about the, the difficulty at being born, the difficulty of aging, of getting sick, of dying, the difficulty of not getting what you want, the difficulty of not wanting what you get, the difficulty of loss, many kinds of difficulty, the difficulty of change, the difficulty of just having to deal with life every day, the, I call it the Groundhog Day predicament, the the get up and do it again, Jackson Brown predicament, that in this way, life is stressful, and that, um, that this is not an aberration, this is not a pessimistic view of life, this is just how it is. And his prescription for how to deal with this is that we need to welcome it. Because we all know the extent to which we think that there's something wrong with this and try every which way, innocently, to try to avoid that fact. I think this is expressed kind of nicely in this uh, anonymous story entitled The 84th Problem. Once a farmer went to tell the Buddha about his problems. He told the Buddha about his troubles farming, how either droughts or monsoons made his work very difficult. He told the Buddha about his wife, how even though he loved her, there were certain things about her he wanted to change. Likewise with his children, yes, he loved them, but they weren't turning out quite the way he wanted. When he was finished, he asked how the Buddha could help him with his troubles. The Buddha said, I'm sorry, but I can't help you. What do you mean, railed the farmer? You're supposed to be a great teacher. The Buddha replied, sir, it's like this. All human beings have 83 problems. It's a fact of life. Sure, a few problems may go away now and then, but soon enough others will arise. So we'll always have 83 problems. The farmer responded indignantly. Then what's the good of all your teaching? The Buddha replied, "My teaching can't help with the 83 problems, but perhaps it can help with the 84th problem." "What's that," asked the farmer? "The 84th problem is that we don't think we should have any problems." So the Buddha's prescription was to welcome this fact, to not spend a life running from from our stresses, that the cure for pain is in the pain. Running from difficulties has never made anyone happy. It's just increased our stress. And this is what he spoke about in his. the second thing he said to his friends. He said, what keeps our mental stress and the wheel of suffering going is what Anna has spoken about several times, which is this habit of liking and disliking, and this chronic, deeply conditioned desire for things to be different than the way they are, that expresses itself as a constant state of thirst, of hunger, of craving. The way the Buddha spoke about it, it was he talked about it as craving for pleasure, craving to get somewhere, become someone, uh, that's more of the desire side, and the aversion side is the the craving for um, for things to stop, the, expressing itself as aversion. I want to get rid of this, or the ultimate aversion, or the ultimate craving for non-becoming, to to actually to die, and you could see the suicidal impulse impulses, the extreme form of craving, and it's this habit. That expresses itself as wanting things to be different than the way they are. That keeps us in that state of uh, suspended well-being, that state of restlessness, the state of of dependency on conditions, and a, a view of reality that this um, that, that there's no possibility of finding relief right now. That trance that uh, rep- is represented by Mara. And his prescription for this tendency of mind, this very strong habit of, of wanting things to be different, was to, uh, to, as it's spoken about in the teachings, to abandon this cause, to let go of this, this habit of craving, to do, as Ajahn Chah says, to do everything with a mind that lets go. And this is really the function of mindfulness. As I mentioned before, in that moment of mindfulness, there is no grasping, there is no pushing away, these two forms of wanting things to be different. There is no denying, there is no spacing out, there's, just, there's letting things go. Every moment, we're opening our fist. That's why Ajahn Chah said, do everything with a mind that lets go. He says, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. And if you let go completely, you will have complete peace and freedom. Your struggles with the world will come to an end. I'm wondering how many of you have any confidence in these words as you hear them? Just a few. Thank you. <laughs> it's funny. Do we really think it's possible to relinquish the causes of our, our stress? Of course, the faith that, um, that one is invited to, to um, develop in practice is meant to de- be developed from our direct experience, not through belief or adopting views or believing anything I said, or I say, or any of us say, but really seeing for yourself what happens when there's clinging? What happens when there's letting go? What happens when there's clinging without mindfulness? What happens when there's clinging with mindfulness? What happens to the clinging? this is what we practice moment to moment. So the first two, there's stress, welcome it. There's a cause, begin to let go. The third, more good news, that there is an end to it. There, one can know in real time the cessation of, of grasping. I'm sure many of you today maybe had an opportunity to pay attention to something that was difficult, to actually feel it, feel one of those sensations. Did any of you notice both the the passing away of the sensation? Did any of you notice that you were really reactive? And then you notice the reaction and perhaps notice that melt away. So this is not something we just adopt as a view. It's something you can begin to see in real time there's an end to our contentiousness, our, rea- our need for things to be different. And how do we know that? By paying attention to that very state of mind that keeps us bound and then watch it, see if it melts away. I haven't seen anything last be able to withstand that, that light of attention for that long. I don't mean a physical pain, sometimes it gets worse, but the reaction to it that needing it to be different potential that we, that we can discover in our practice. of We all have pain, but it, usually the sense of pain and suffering are so fused, but it can be quite, uh, it's something very accessible to begin to see that the pain, uh, that I know this is an overused expression, but the pain is inevitable, but the suffering about it is, is optional. We can actually see that, we can tease those apart right in the middle of it, right in the midst of it. So there's an end to suffering, and the prescription for that is this must be realized, not just thought about, not just known intellectually, but realized. And last but not least, there is a path, fourth truth that he shared with his friend. There is a path to the cessation, to the letting go of the forces of that keep us really, st- tight and stuck and and in a battle with with our situation with reality with our with ourselves and this he said must be cultivated this path and this path has within it all the elements that allow for the purification of our of our minds it starts with the purification of our actions that's how we live with ourselves with each other how we Uh, how we talk, the basic precepts that we talked about on the first night, not not causing harm to ourselves or others with our speech, with our actions, uh, sexuality, intoxicants, all of that. So we bring attention, bring mindfulness to that. Any place that we have up to this point practiced what might be called unwholesome actions, we begin to bring mindfulness, and through that we start to act in a way that's that's non-harming and begin to purify our actions. And what we're also doing here is the, the second part of the Eightfold Path called the Purification of Mind where we develop the, the powers of mind, to, that the sense of building of energy, the building of mindfulness, the building of concentration. And then the third part of the, the Eightfold Path called the Purification of view, where we where our, by having that mirror-like awareness, our view of reality can shift and we can start to understand it in a different way and let go. So we no longer living as though things are, as the Buddha called, said, those three misperceptions that that which is, um, imp- we stop being, thinking that that which is impermanent is permanent, stop thinking that that which is unreliable is reliable, and we stop thinking that that which is, um, Not really personal, not self, can define us. Is we stop thinking that it's me and mine. That's the purification of view. The center of that, the navigator, is this moment-to-moment practice of mindfulness. So here you are now. Here we are together, and we're actually following these four truths. Uh, not as a philosophical um, treatise, but really as a living practice. And we start with finding our bodies and that first truth, our bodies hurt. Can we welcome this? Just for one moment, can we welcome the hurt in the body? Ah, This is dukkha. So you may think you've just been having a hard time, but you've actually been having insight into the first noble truth so i don't know if that makes you feel any better (laughs) (laughs) so we open to our sensations we perhaps discovered today that capacity to uh, to me one of the greatest revelations that i had in my own practice was uh, was i had searing pain and I remember just perspiring intensely, and I had burning and stabbing. And and from the surface, it seemed like, as Anna was saying last night, it seemed like a thing, this monolith. But then I started to pay attention to it. And I was very reactive, but then I started, I was, the teacher said, pay attention to this. So I started paying attention. And for a little time, see if you can just hold your posture. Don't immediately move into to the com- your, your comfort zone, just for the purpose of experimentation. Ultimately, it's m- not meant to be a torture test. Uh, so at some point you can move, but for now, check this out. And so I, it started to burn, it started to sear, it started to squeeze, it started to cut, it started to, and then I started to perspire. And, and I'm sitting with this and all of a sudden I realized that this pain was so completely intense and my mind was happy. And it was such a, a shock that I could have such uncomfortable feelings and my mind not be in a place of reaction. And it became clear that if, if I am, and perhaps if you are, if you're interested in what's happening, if you're curious about what's happening, That very moment, you cannot, you can't suffer and be curious and interested in the same moment. So the invitation is, you can take it with you as the night goes on, see what happens when you bring some interest to what's going on. See what happens when you bring some curiosity. See if something uncomfortable stops being um, necessarily mental suffering. So today we introduced the the domain, the invitation to pay attention to the domain of, of the feeling tone, the valence that accompanies every single experience, the, the pleasantness, the unpleasantness, and the neutral feelings that come with every single experience that comes up. So there's no experience that uh, is without some kind of valence. And this is a... Um, and Anna really spoke of this uh, this morning, but this is I, I like to think of this as ground zero in the uh, the place where so much of the difficulties that we experience in our mind and in our lives spawns from these little these little feeling tones and it's said that in the te- in the teachings that if and I can say from my own experience some of this is true if you can begin to pay attention to these Feeling tones, let me put it this way. If you don't pay attention to these feeling tones, if we don't understand these feeling tones, what quickly follows is liking and disliking and or ignoring and denying. Especially when it's neutral, we just space out. So this is often why the space between the breaths that Anna offered in the instructions today, that's often a neutral place. That's often the place where we just take off. So that we're invited to just hover in that space of neutrality. And it's a really interesting world, that space between the breaths. But we're invited in many cases to notice the the neutral because it's, uh, it's at this point that we often fall into confusion and delusion. But the pleasant when unnoticed leads to liking. And what happens after liking? Wanting, and what happens after wanting? strategizing, then pretty soon we're, we are far afield and what happens to the present moment while we're caught in that little dreamscape? Not such a great place to be. We're busy on our way somewhere else. Present gets colored. So it's said if you can catch this feeling tone, get to know the unpleasant. Find your composure with that. It, it has the effect of cutting that chain and you, and you, you spend a little less a, little, a few less lifetimes wandering in your mind. And you, you find your seat right in the middle of it all. And it's subtle, though. So you may not catch it at the moment of, of pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. But wherever you wake up, whether it's in the middle of a massive storm or an intense pain in your body, that moment is equally a moment where the chain gets loosened at least. Where you you stop being living in a trance example of this, and I please forgive me if uh, I'm going to share what someone said in a in an interview group today, and I'm going to share it because it's a universal experience. Many people have this experience in this case, uh, you know sometimes even though what we're when we offer mindfulness of breathing, we don't offer it as a breathing exercise, but because we choose it as an object, there is a tendency to really grab onto that breath. And instead of letting it just breathe naturally, let the body breathe itself, knowing that some are short, some are long, rough, smooth, sometimes very faint. Instead, we hold onto it and start breathing very intentionally. And it starts getting a little louder. And it gets so loud that, the person sitting next to you, if you're if you're uh, if you happen to fall into that, can can hear your breath and not their own, and would rather hear their own than yours. And this has happened to I think everybody I've ever met on retreat at some point or another, where the sound of someone's breath, and sometimes it has to do with with uh, some our nasal congestion, many things. So it's not there's no blame in it, but nevertheless an experience like that, and you you could transpose any kind of experience, an experience like that, it triggers uh, an aversive response. Your mind gets tight. So it was this unpleasant experience, that moment of unpleasantness goes unnoticed, it leads to not liking, and then it spawns this whole reaction. And that person automatic, all of a sudden, becomes the, the reason for all of your misery and the secret to your happiness if you can somehow figure out how to arrange the situation so you don't have to feel it. And pretty soon, there's all kinds of strategizing going on, and, and, this is, uh, and it can turn into a, a major diatribe in the mind. And it's classically been, there's a name for this that's been classically called, especially if the, the Focus gets really fixated on the person who's doing it uh, they, we call it the VV the Vipassana vendetta <laughs> and when you see how automatic this is and how strong it is in the mind you you can and it's it's very tormenting because it we enter into that whole world of, of reactivity and the story of it is so compelling that it's that we're literally our body goes into contraction, and often the the metaphor that's used or the simile for the the state of mind of aversion, which is the two is the second of the of the five hindrances, and I'm going to talk more about them. But the uh, simile used is, is some water, some beautiful clear water that's that's um, that's being all stirred up that's boiling, and this is what happens when you hear the expression burning with aversion, burning with anger. And it seems like a, a very unworkable situation, but we are invited in the practice to recognize both the story that our mind is telling us, but also the felt sense of aversion we can literally put that aversion to good use. Just as I mentioned earlier in this talk, that very experience that is tormenting us can be the very cause of our awakening. And what we're invited to do is to, if we can, to notice the story, be gracious about the fact that our mind is spinning a tale about this, but gently relinquish the story and to drop into an uh, an interested, curious exploration of the feeling of aversion. What is aversion like? Again, let me be the first one to die of aversion, which means let me open to this. And I think perhaps at this point, uh, I think it it might be, especially in this time of so much rain, I'd like to offer you a, an acronym that's been used for many, many years by many practitioners that can be a helpful way of working with a state of mind like this in a situation where you have a, either a vendetta going or a major aversion attack or anger attack. And of course, aversion expresses itself sometimes as boredom, sometimes as fear, sometimes as aversion, irritation, you know, the whole range of, of ill will, as it's called. And this acronym of RAIN gives us a, a, a way of being with this. So the, RAIN, the acronym of RAIN is broken down by, uh, the, there's a meaning to each letter, R-A-I-N. R stands for recognize, which is really that quality of mindfulness. Ah, this is aversion. So the first is to recognize that this is what's happening. This is what we want to do with all of these states of mind. We don't want to ignore them. We don't want to suppress them. We don't want to act them out. We want to recognize them. Oh, this is aversion. The second part of the uh, acronym is, the A is um, accept or allow. Allow this to be here, accept that it's here. Okay, I recognize that this is aversion. I'm having a really hard time here. I accept that this is here. And then the third part of this acronym, is the I, is uh, investigate. And normally when we think of investigate, we think of reflection, of thinking about, as Anna was speaking of last night. Investigate, in the meditative sense, is to, as she said, to experience the quality of this experience of aversion. How does it feel? We're great at the story of our different states of mind, we're not so good at feeling them. So we wanna feel it, we wanna investigate its quality, and then as we investigate its quality, burning, squeezing, whatever that flavor is of aversion, we want to notice what happens to it. We want to understand its behavior. We want to see whether, and we don't want to try to interfere at all. Remember the function of mindfulness. It's this non-interfering attention. We want to investigate to see what happens. Does it get stronger, that feeling? Does it stay the same? Does it vanish? Does it change into some other feeling? Is it solid? Is it impermanent? Is it, what, what happens to it? So it's both its quality and its, natu- its nature, its behavior. And then the last part of the acronym RAIN, the N, is uh, this can be translated many different ways. Uh, often it's translated as non-identification. It's recognizing that that feeling that has arisen is not me, it's not mine. It's something that has arisen according to conditions, like a weather front, it's arisen It's taken a certain shape in our bodies, in our minds. It's arising and it's passing away like a cloud passing through the sky. And ultimately it doesn't have any more reality than that. So non-identification means you don't make it into something so personal. The other way of looking at it, of the end is non-clinging. You just let it go, you let it be as it is. So recognize, accept, investigate, non-identify or non-clean. We begin to see that even this more, this tormenting condition. How many of you had an aversion attack today? How many of you applied this this mindfulness in the way that I'm describing? A few of you, great. Any of you discover any change in your relationship as you did that? Thank you. This is something that's, uh, this is really in some ways the heart of the practice. Uh, One of my teachers used to say that the hindrances are the practice, working with these states of mind. One said, practice is easy, it's just the hindrances that are difficult. (laughs) So the Buddha named these five very common energies that are uh, states of mind that when unnoticed with mindfulness, torment us and trance us into looking away from this uh, moment for relief and, and really blind us to the freedom that's, that's, uh, um, that's available to us right in this very moment, in this very life, right on the, the very seat that you're sitting on. Uh, and, it, and they tend to, when they go unnoticed, lead us into a kind of insatiable uh, seeking because it's in that, it's in that world of, of living in the, in the stories of these mental states that we, um, that we construct the whole sense of time, of the imagined future, even of the imagined past. And we lose fact that there is only this unfolding present as Alan Watts put it, only this eternal now. and We can literally live in a kind of dreamscape. So we're invited to, to highlight, to pay attention to these states of mind. The first one, I, I spoke of already aversion. The other side of aversion is the state of, of wanting, uh, desire for sense pleasures. And this one's a, this one we all recognize. We live in a in a um, in a culture that values the seeking of sense pleasures, maybe as the as the number one antidote for this sense of uh, of angst and unreliability and changes. Just keep those pleasures coming in, and at least for a moment, I get a little relief and feel that life is good and worthwhile. But unfortunately, the, the, the wake of every one of our, uh, our, those little fleeting pleasures is uh, ugh, gone, and then followed by a, another wanting. And being what I would characterize as a classic grasping type or greed type, there are the three so-called three common character types, the grasping or greed type, the aversive type, and the deluded type. Each of us has all of them, but some of us are predominated by one as a greed type, I've really tested out this world of the wanting mind and gotten seduced and um, and also seen the the emptiness of it. And this is not to say that we should abandon the world of, of pleasures, but we we need to understand their their limitations, because otherwise we we all fall under what the Buddha called a kind of misplaced faith in their in the wanting mind as a source of well-being. Just understand that that kind of pleasure that comes is beautiful, but it's fleeting and um, and tends to create this sense that we need something to be happy. And as, um, as the same teacher Nisargadatta put it, nothing can make you happier than you are, fundamentally. That the search for it, leads to misery. How do you feel when I say that? <laughs> well, this is the, the voice of the wanting mind, but it's important that we understand that this is our cultural trance. The, uh, and I actually brought a little passage from, from Sogyal Rinpoche that speaks to this um, cultural, so that we remember that it's not just, it's that we're not our fault. That it's, uh, that it's really, we're the, we're the inheritors of so many forces and causes and conditions. Sogyal puts it this way, sometimes I think that the greatest achievement of modern culture is its brilliant selling of samsara and its barren distractions. Modern society seems to me a celebration of all the things that lead away from the truth, make truth hard to live for and discourage people from even believing that it exists. And to think that all this springs from a civilization that claims to adore life, but actually starves it of any real meaning, that endlessly speaks of making people happy, but in fact blocks their way to the source of real joy. This modern samsara feeds off an anxiety and a depression that it fosters and trains us all in, and carefully nurtures with a consumer machine that needs to keep us greedy to keep going. Samsara is highly organized, versatile, sophisticated, assaults us from every angle with its propaganda and creates an almost impregnable environment of addiction around us. The more we try to escape, the more we seem to fall into the traps it's so ingenious it's setting for us. Obsessed then with false hopes, dreams, ambitions, which promise happiness but lead only to misery, we're like people crawling through an endless desert, dying of thirst. And all that samsara holds out to us to drink is a cup of salt water designed to make us even thirstier. So understanding the, the pleasure of things, but their limitation, and ideally understanding what it means to be free of that kind of uh, addiction. Just to give you a, a brief fill-in, how many of you had an intense desire today? Did any of you have uh, w- what classically called the VR? The Vipassana romance, where someone produced that you saw produced a pleasant feeling in your mind. That pleasant feeling was often was followed by liking, and then wanting, and then pretty soon you had constructed your whole relationship, and your marriage, and travel, and family, or whatever. This is this is where we go with um, with the wanting mind, and we're invited to use that same quality. We can wander a long time in these states of desire coloring the present moment as as not enough. Instead, we can feel the state of desire. Oh, this is wanting. Feel it's that sense of I can't be happy until I get what I want. Put your attention on that. Feel that sense of I can't be happy until the bell rings. Waiting, hanging on your seat. Feel that feeling of waiting. Take your attention off the bell for a moment. Take your attention off that person. Graciously relinquish the person, relinquish the bell, and feel the state of wanting. And you will recognize, even before you, you date and mate, even before the bell rings, you'll recognize, perhaps, that waiting and wanting are changing conditions. They're just little weather fronts. And mixed with awareness, they liberate themselves. It passes away. You recognize it, you accept it, you investigate the nature of that feeling of wanting and you don't cling to it. And the same with restlessness and agitation, the same with dullness even, to put attention on the experience of dullness rather than turning into something personal, having personal meaning. Recognize it in that meditative way as a changing condition. So we've got desire, aversion, restlessness, Sloth and torpor is the fourth one. we talked a lot about working with sleepiness, standing up, walking, opening the eyes, pulling on the ears, splashing water on the face, lots of things. Restlessness and agitation, feeling restless, feeling, sitting, working with calm, working with the breath, working with spaciousness, things that can help support you, but ultimately to be mindful of restlessness. Agitation, worry the ways, the forms that it takes, that's the story of it. We feel it in the body. That very experience anchors us. And last but not least, the fifth one. So we've got desire, aversion, restlessness, sloth, and torpor. Fifth one is doubt. Skeptical doubt. I can't do this. Any of you ask yourself, why did I come here? Any of you compare this to other practices, other things? This is often a disguise for a doubt. And it's very incapacitating if we follow that narrative of doubt. Instead, we try to notice, oh, this is doubt. We notice the story, we feel it in our body. We try to regard all of these states, all of this condition, all this conditioning as non-personal, as as changing. Um, We use that acronym. Perhaps you'll more likely never remember that acronym since... Never forget that acronym since it's been raining so much here. So as we work with these different energies, we recognize that they're conditioned. And they're based on, really on what we have um, innocently practiced. The innocent ways that we've been taught to seek relief has been through busyness, through, uh, through acquisition, through avoidance through uh, skepticism, through living a lot in our, um, in our minds. As Padmasambhava put it, he says, if you want to understand your past, look at your present condition. This is not to be the cause of self-blame, but to understand that these, what you see in your mind is the result of where you have dwelled. And the Buddha put it, he said, what one frequently dwells upon becomes the inclination of our mind. And this is both the bad news: is that we are we're, we bear the fruits of what we do with our minds. But it's also the good news, and it reminds us that we are, that that when we are awake, every moment of wakefulness is a fertile ground. It's an empty space that we can really plant seeds. We can, he said, that second part: if you want to understand your future, look at your present actions. So that is, uh, hopefully, we we practice mindfulness. We fill it with mindfulness and love. So as a sequel to Anna's poem last night about the wolves, I end with another Hafiz poem called To Build a Swing. You carry all the ingredients to turn your life into a nightmare. Don't mix them. You have all the genius to build a swing in your backyard for the divine. That sounds like a hell of a lot more fun. Let's start laughing, drawing blueprints, gathering our talented friends. I will help you with my divine lyre and drum. Hafiz will sing a thousand words you can take into your hands like golden saws, silver hammers, polished teakwood, strong silk rope. You carry all the ingredients to turn your existence into joy. Mix them, mix them. So let's sing. beings use their difficulties as the path. May all beings awaken and learn steady mindfulness. Thanks for your long attention. We have about 25 minutes for walking practice, planting those seeds. And we'll sit again at 9 o'clock. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.